Support for Meaningful Conversations comes from Wix.com. With Wix, you can create your very own professional website, choose a template you love, and customize it by adding your very own text, images, and videos. With hundreds of intuitive design features, you can tell your story exactly the way you want. Want even more for your website? You can easily start a blog, launch an online store, or create an event. Share everything in a click on social media and drive even more traffic to your site with SEO tools to get found on Google. Wix believes anything is possible with the right website builder. So whether you're about to create a website for the first time or you're a longtime pro, Wix has you covered. Over 140 million people choose Wix to create their website. So create yours today. Get started now by going to Wix.com. That's W-I-X.com slash Meaningful Conversations to get 10% off. I'm Maria Shriver, and this is Meaningful Conversations. On every episode, we'll take a journey into the lives of inspiring, thoughtful, thought-provoking people. People who are smart, spirited, and spiritual. People who have done extraordinary things to make a positive impact on our world. These are people I respect and admire. People who inspire me. I want them to share their stories, their experiences, their wisdom, and their feelings with you. I hope we can come together in community to reflect on the issues and topics that we're all thinking about, but no one seems to be talking about. I hope that you're inspired to have more meaningful conversations with the people in your life. Okay, this is an incredible yippee moment for me because today's episode is a conversation with my brother, Timothy Shriver one of the all-time greatest human beings on the planet. Timothy, uh, or Timmy as I like to call him, is the chairman of Special Olympics, which our mother founded back in 1968. He's also the leader of the Inclusion Revolution and the board chair of CASEL, a collaborative that is working to make evidence-based social and emotional learning a part of our educational system. He's been so out in front on this and on so many other issues, and he's made Special Olympics uh, a very different organization than the one that my mother started, and he's kept all the great things and added so many other things. But today I wanted to talk to him and bring him to you because Timmy is a man who's on a quest to discover what matters most in life. Our conversations are always deeply meaningful to me because we always go really deep and we explore how we feel about the world today. We're also both committed to living and leading from a place of hope instead of despair, and he does it in a way that I just marvel at. I have no doubt that Timmy will inspire you, make you think, and get you thinking about all the great things in our country and all the great things in our communities that are going on. That's one of the great gifts I think that he has, is to shine a light on a nation that he calls Inspiration Nation, shine a light on the people that he calls Transformers. I call them architects of change, but what they all have in common is that they're inspirational. Here's Timmy. So here on uh, Meaningful Conversations today, I'm welcoming my brother, Timothy, who is the person I have the most meaningful conversations with. And Timmy, we always begin these conversations by asking our guest, what is meaningful to them? Do they feel that they're actually living a meaningful life? So uh, first of all, thanks for having me. (laughs) And thanks for all of our meaningful conversations, which I would say, not surprisingly, help contribute, at least for me, to making me feel like I'm having a meaningful life. Because I think at the end of the day, most of our meaning comes from our relationships. Most of our happiness comes from our relationships. Most of our sense of purpose comes from our relationships. So my relationship with you is not just a source of conversation or insight or, you know, laughs or gossip, I dare say, but is also a really profound source of meaning, like my relationship with my wife, Linda, my relationship with my kids, my grandson, yeah. <laughs> my brothers, my nieces and nephews, these are all powerful sources of fulfillment and purpose. And when we connect with people, especially on a deeper level, not on a superficial level, I think it gives us, gives me a sense 
that I'm doing things that matter. It feels like the world matters, mm -hmm. like life matters when I feel that coming back to me from others. Do you equate meaningful and meaning with purpose? I think purpose is one part. I think because purpose tends, I feel like always tends to pull me out to something bigger. And that's part of meaningful. But I think another part of meaningful is something within, something deeper. It's not just something bigger. It's also something deeper. And to see purpose, to understand, to feel, to connect to a purpose, I think you have to be able to connect first to yourself, mm -hmm. to your deepest source of meaning, to your deepest and most true self. So I think there's a journey outward, but there's also a journey inward. And I think they both form a part of making meaning or feeling meaning. So the journey inward, you've been extremely helpful to me in encouraging me to take that journey inward, which for so many people is scary, it's confusing, but I think it's ultimately the most powerful journey we take. So how do you do that and also be out in the world? And I should say, Timmy is the CEO of Special Olympics, has taken it kind of all around the world, has just issued a report in his role with social and emotional learning uh, to the nation, a big Aspen Institute report about how we learn. So I want to mention those two things because many people think that the only way to take a journey inward is not to have these big jobs that where you're working 14 hours a day out in the world, but you do them simultaneously. Yeah, I think actually uh, all the great religions and philosophical traditions have always suggested at their highest and most powerful insight that the journey inward and the journey outward are the same, but you have to do them both. You can't really actually, even, you know, monks who we think of or, you know, people who move into monasteries, live secluded lives, even those traditions are rooted in powerful senses of community. Even those groups bond not just to the inner life, but to the relationship with their brothers or sisters in the monastery. So I think we make a false distinction. My One of my great mentors, Richard Rohr, speaks of his place being a center for action and contemplation, where the yeah. most important word is and. It's action and contemplation. So to create a rhythm in our lives, to create a rhythm in my life where I can have 20 minutes in the morning or 20 minutes in the evening for centering prayer for silence and then charge out into the world with some, I hope, sense of openness and trust and consent to the will, if I can put it that way, the will of the divine. As I engage the world, to me, that's the sweet spot to be able to cultivate your soul and allow it to express itself with trust in the world uh, is not an either or, it's a both and. And you and I have spoken about this, but you're out in the world, I would say, a lot more than I. I've never, I don't know anybody who travels as much as you globally and also domestically. And you're seeing, you always tell me, so many people who are combining that inner and outer life, that contemplation and that action, people who are trying to unite, doing good. And you say that all of this division, anger, and hate that we're being told is out there, that you're actually seeing people live different life in a different country. Yeah, I think, Maureen, I think, we, I think there are really, there's a story going on in the country that we don't really understand yet. It's not the story of people who are progressives hating people who are conservatives or people who are conservatives hating people who are progressives. That's largely a story told by politics and the media. It's real. It's scary. It's ominous. It's troubling. But there's a whole nother story emerging, which we don't yet have the name for, I believe. It's the story of people at the bottom who value relationship more than anything, who value action and authenticity. They don't necessarily identify with a party. They identify with causes that matter to them deeply. Mm -hmm. They identify with a sense of moral transformation. They, they connect to people. A lot of the stories you tell in your Sunday paper are stories, uh, I would argue, of people who are living a different way of engaging with their pain. They don't necessarily project it onto others. They try to hold it and then transform it through actions that connect with young people, with schools, with the earth, with service to their country, with integrity, with responsibility. They're inspired. They're open. I've talked to hundreds of young people just in the last few weeks about what's the word they would most like to use about who they want to be in the future and who they feel they are. The word that comes up over and over again is, I want to be open. 
I want to be open to people. I want to respect mm. everyone. One young man said, "Just he's actually a Special Olympics athlete, and he says, you know, I want to be inclusive without exceptions, no, no exceptions. So there's a sense of openness and trust that's not the divisive story, right? It's not the story of we hate each other. It's the story of people who want to almost have a belief system that values openness and service and respect and dignity above all those other things. I think that's so important to contemplate. And I think it's so important for people to really take in that there's a completely different narrative going on in the country than the narrative that might be on social media, that the narrative that might be in the mainstream media, but that's just in, as big and powerful as all the division and hatred we're seeing. I mean, I, uh, you know, I like to say I have a front row seat for the best in humanity. Oh, I love that. That's I love my, that. my <sighs> the gift that has been given to me, showered upon me by some source of love and energy that's much bigger than I can ever imagine. Is that in your role as Special Olympics? Is that it's in your my, role in social role emotional as, learning? I mean, I, when I go to schools, I mean, I, I'm a teacher by training. I like to think of myself as an educator and a voice in the for, reform and the improvement of education so we can make it focused on children, not just on information. But when I look around at the volunteer communities, and they come red and blue. They're, they're all over the country, people that just wake up in the morning and say, I want to help. I want to serve. I want to give. That's the people I meet when I go to a community. If I go to you know, China, I meet mothers and fathers who are dying to have their children be seen and loved and respected, and who are doing that for other kids. When, same thing if I'm in, in different communities here in the United States. So I... Maybe, you know, people say, well, you don't have a real view. You're naive or you're too idealistic. And maybe I am. But I'm just telling you that's what I see everywhere I go. Yesterday, I was in San Diego at Olympian High School talking to high school students. The gym filled 3,000 kids in the gym cheering for their peers who have special needs. Kids coming in wheelchairs, getting help to shoot their baskets, playing on Special Olympics unified teams. Teachers, I had two, the, the head of athletics and the head uh, of special education told me, the grown men, strong men, powerful men, how they have been reduced to tears in their work as educators when they see the love that exists between their students. Now, you know, we don't often think of men as crying openly. And both of these men in front of their peers, 500 people attending a conference, spoke of how emotionally transformed they are when they see the love amongst their kids. So I think there is a really powerful, I mean, I think our young people are emblematic of it, but I think our generation also. Yeah. I think there are boomers who are, let's say, over 50, mm -hmm. maybe over 55. <laughs> maybe over 60. <laughs> maybe over 60. Yeah. And I think we've seen a little bit of life, right? We, we maybe grew up around the civil rights movement, the women's movement, the peace movements, the, the, the pain of Vietnam, so on, Watergate, these kinds of things. But we grew up feeling like we could create something different in the world, like we could create a world. And maybe we feel a little bit disappointed that it didn't work as much as we'd hoped. But here we are at a point in our lives where we've seen a little bit of success. We've seen a little bit of failure. We see the reemergence of the pain of, of racism and how prevalent it is in our country, sexism, ableism, these kinds of things. And we really want to make a difference. We don't want to just revisit the old fights. We don't want to just blame people all day long. We want to actually heal people too. And it doesn't have to be an either or, but there's a sense in the country, I think, of people wanting to lean into a much more hopeful and unifying energy than just a hateful and mean-spirited one. So I think that's really important. You can follow Timmy on Instagram if you want to see the world that he is describing. I, I'm a big believer in curating your newsfeed so that it is perhaps filled with people who are offering a different version and vision of what is going on in the world and the one maybe that the mainstream media that I'm a part of is uh, giving to you every night, which focuses on division, which focuses, I believe, on anger, you know, noise. And you're really offering, and so many other people that you're in contact with are putting up on Instagram, putting up on Twitter and Facebook, a very different vision yeah. and reality. Yeah, it's funny you say that because I met with a teacher yesterday. So, in what San is your Diego. handle on Instagram? Timothy Shriver? Tim Shriver. Tim I think. Shriver. 
I think that's what it is. Okay, yeah. Tim Shriver. So yeah. if you want to follow where I'm trying to get better at social media. No, but, but it was interesting. This teacher I spoke to yesterday, she was talking in front of this conference. She's a, she's a woman who's very powerful and active in this whole space. And she says, I said, so what's your practice? And she says, I get up every morning at 4 a.m. And I have curated my Twitter, just as you've said. Mm-hmm. And I look at the news of the 10 or 15 people that are most important to me and are telling me the stories and giving me the insight and the strength and the wisdom and the, and the, and the vision to make my day. I say, so, so you don't turn on the cable news. You don't turn on, you don't listen to the radio. No. She says, I have curated my world so that when I wake up, what comes in is what I want to give out for the rest of the day. And I thought it was fascinating because I thought to myself, I need to do that. I need yeah. to not just have an inbox that has this, that, or the other, but to actually curate the world I want to let in so that the world I give back is the world I want to participate in. I don't want to let in things that are going to damage my capacity to be open, healing, loving, transformative for others. And I think that's a really good advice. We can. This is one thing that social media makes possible. You can choose. Right, so some in. people say like, well, then you want to choose only things that you agree with, only things that you think are true, and you don't. You're then omitting other points of views, other perspectives. Yeah, I think that's the risk that you narrow the field of information that you get. But I think you can choose to allow in the things that create a diversity of perspectives. And so maybe you're a, a strong believer in a particular faith. Maybe you're a Christian, but you allow in news and information and insight from Sufism or from Judaism or from Buddhism, or you, you allow those sources to come in, even though they're not maybe your language, it inspires you. But you don't necessarily need to allow in the, if I can put it this way, the, the purveyors of division. Right. Purveyors uh, of division. That's uh, good. You can you can block that right. without, I think, skewing your worldview. If you're a, very interested in women's issues or Alzheimer's, you can also allow some news in that gives you other dimensions of health or mm-hmm. other dimensions of gender and stuff like that. You can – I still think – well, I'll stop there. No, but I, I have done that myself, yeah. curated my news feed because I found myself so angry and anxious about what was coming in mm-hmm. that I found – and I also have a practice, which you've been very uh, helpful in helping me get, which is that, you know, meditation in the morning, quiet, solitude. When I do look at social media, I curate it more because I want to live in a world where I think people are doing good, where they're positive, where I have a positive view of the world. Mm -hmm. And then I have also boundaries on how much time I do spend there. Mm -hmm. And then I go out and try to do my work, find my meaning, be in connection. And then I look at it again kind of in the evening. Yeah. But I think you said something that's so important, and I think it's emerging, but I don't know that the world is quite recognizing how powerful this is. The practice of quiet or meditation, yes. my tradition, it's called centering prayer, mindfulness, vipassana. There's all kinds of different ways of looking at this. So, Timmy, you talk about centering prayer, and this is something that was developed by Father Thomas Keating. And for people who, uh, who's a hero of yours, was a hero of yours, can you describe what is centering prayer and how you do that? So, centering prayer comes out of the Christian tradition. It is ultimately known often as a prayer of ascent, a prayer of openness. It's the simplest possible prayer you can do. It takes absolutely no training. It just means sitting in silence for 20 minutes twice a day and allowing yourself to be a source of listening and assent to the will of God. So what's the difference between that and TM, for example, where you sit 20 minutes and you repeat a mantra? Well, there are small differences, but the small differences are not really, I wouldn't dwell on. TM, many of the Buddhist traditions... Some of the work that comes out of the Sufi tradition, the work that comes out of the Hasidic tradition and the Kabbalah tradition in Judaism, the idea of listening to the word of God, Shema, you know, the, the great prayer of Judaism, hear, O Israel. Hear. That's the first be- the beginning. Now, there are many translations. I don't want to sound like a scholar. But centering prayer is the Christian version of the prayer of silence, the prayer of ascent, the prayer of detachment. The prayer of no longer being controlled by your thoughts, the prayer of no longer being uh, forced into one way of thinking or feeling, the prayer of openness, the prayer of trust, 
and it all comes from yes there are there are ways in which some some of these prayers emphasize the repeating of the mantra the following of the breath centering prayer suggests repeating the mantra following the breath but then also allowing those to be allowed to let go so that your attention is no longer focused on any one thing but completely open one of the great practitioners of this, my uh, one another hero of mine, Reverend Cynthia Bourgeau, who's an Episcopalian minister, speaks of training the heart to be an organ of perception. You see from your heart, not from your eye. You see from like wholeness. That. You don't see whole things. You see from a place of wholeness. So your interiority is transformed and you develop a new, if you will, antenna. And you begin slowly, after the practice works its way through you, begin slowly to become, we hope, in the, in the Christian language, an instrument of the Holy Spirit, a more willing partner of the divine action, because you see from it, not uh, see yourself as separate from it. Our mutual friend Richard Rohr speaks of seeing in non-duality, seeing in unitive consciousness. So you start to see the world in holes. You see it as gentle. You see it as held and trusting. You hold the pain and the recovery. It doesn't go away. In our tradition, we don't see pain as disappearing. It's not all illusory. It's real. Grief is real. Loss is real. But it's not the end. Mm. Loss and rebirth, death and life, pain and love, They you have to hold them. Anyway, these are things that come from... The practice of centering prayer, Christian meditation, TM, mindfulness. They Silence. have they're 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 cousins of one another, I would say. But what they have at their heart is the discipline necessary, and this is hard because many people give up because it's uncomfortable. Mm-hmm. But the discipline necessary to allow the silence to do its work even when you feel like you want to run. But the emergence of practices of silence is booming in the world. It's booming. In schools, I just read that we've just had a breakthrough in the United Kingdom. They're going to begin teaching mindfulness in the United Kingdom because of the levels of anxiety there. We have multiple programs, Mind Up, Keep Still, a whole host of curricular programs in the United States that are being implemented in large ways in schools. A lot of emotional intelligence-rooted programs that allow people to have a mood meter, have a feelings dictionary, have a stress thermometer so they become aware of who they are, how they're feeling, and then can let some of that go in practices of silence or quiet or guided serenity. We asked kids yesterday, you know, if you could tell Americans, what do you wish Americans knew? Mm. Complete the sentence. We asked high school students. One answer was, I wish Americans knew serenity. Wow. This is from a six, you know, 16-year-old. So I think that's a big part of what's happening in all the religions. So, you know, people in religion, they, you know, I, we grew up with a strong religious tradition Catholic. in the Catholic Church. Ugh, don't get me started right now in the Catholic Church, but go ahead, keep going. But the good news is that all of these traditions have, sometimes not on the surface, but within them, mm. an invitation to try practices of silence. One young uh, kid from Des Moines, Iowa said, you know, your true self is who you are when you're alone. Mm. And you have to practice being this is a this is I think a 13-year-old if I remember correctly. You have to be alone to know your true self. And okay, what she was, that's really big what you just said. Yeah. You have to be alone to know your true self. And you were saying we had dinner last night with Christina, my daughter, and you were talking about the importance of young people spending time alone so that they could know who they are, and maybe learn about what skills they need to cope with their loneliness, anxiety, depression, to, and to know to know yourself. You know, these are old these are old insights, but they're coming back fresh in our culture. I think to know yourself is to be able to give yourself meaningfully to others, right? Not to be afraid of others. I mean, I can't tell you how many times I've seen a Special Olympics athlete standing on a, an award stand. You've seen them too. Mm-hmm. Maybe in second or third or fourth or fifth or sixth or seventh place with their arms raised. And there's some message there 
that it didn't matter how they finished. They know that they have they've given themselves with bravery and courage and persistence to the task. They feel free to be themselves in those moments. And in some ways, they allow the rest of us an invitation. Go into your, as, as it says in the gospel, go into your inner room and close the door. And let yourself listen. Let yourself practice listening in silence. And I think we hear in those moments an ascent to a reality much bigger than ourselves, which is ourselves. So in your quiet, you come not only to know yourself, but to be comfortable and at peace at some, in some level with who you are and free, therefore, to be who you are in the world. And without that, I mean, this is why I like to think we're, I, I say we're, we're in a spiritual age. We're not in a religious age. I don't think we're really in a nationalistic age. I mean, there's a lot of evidence of, you know, we're not in a hateful age, a divided age. You know, some of those tensions are real. But we're also in a spiritual age where people are hungering for the language, starving, as our friend Thomas Keating said, starving for God in a whole new way. When you say that, and this kind of uh, brings everything together, your work in Special Olympics, your work in Castle, which is education program for social and emotional learning, your work kind of out in the world that you see people who are doing good, you said, who are on the front rows of humanity, who are hungry for a language to describe themselves that runs counter to this border wall talk, division talk, nationalistic talk. What is the language you think we're all grappling for? What, what is that? Well, I think it's a language of the inner life that is, allows us to do a couple of things. So first, all of us have pain. Mm -hmm. It's uncomfortable. You want to run away from it. Those spiritual or, I think, psychological masters have uh, in the world teach us consistently not to run from it, but to try to transform it, to let it teach us. Mm -hmm. As we talked this morning, Bishop Tutu has said, to not opt for grievance, but allow grief, to allow grief to, to work its way through us and not opt immediately to blaming someone for it. I think that's part of the hunger. I think we all want permission to shine. Mm -hmm. I think people have a huge desire to radiate, to smile, to share their light, but they walk around a little bit holding it in, not sh not sure if it's if it's okay. I think I think we want a permission to radiate love, if I can use that language, in the yeah. world, not to be uncomfortable with it. We see this a lot in masculinity. I think we're seeing a shift in the way in which men, particularly young men, think of love that it's okay to love in a way that's tender and gentle and responsible and compassionate, not just a way that's violent or machismo or controlling or dominating. It's a shift. I think we have a long way to go. I think maybe third, we, we really want uh, to believe deeply in ourselves. And so, you know, there's all these shifts to believing in yourself, to believing and belonging to others, to shining in the world, to allowing grief to work its way through our lives and not control our lives. You know, it's, it's a work in progress. We don't, you know, we have, we have examples. I think like we'd say AA is probably one of the great examples of a spiritual language, a language of the inner life used to help people transform their lives and live a more sober, if I can put it that way, a life. And there are others that are happening. So let's. So someone's listening to that and they say like, oh, I want to be in that world that he's describing. I want to let my light shine. I want to be around with people. I want to be in community with people who want to do well. And so they can get involved in Special Olympics, for example, that you run here in the country right. or around the world. They can be a part of the, what you call the inclusion revolution, revolution right? right? So you can follow that on Timmy's Instagram or that's also part of Special Olympics, if they want their children to discover an inner life and perhaps be recognized more for their emotional intelligence, they can work with their schools to adapt social and emotional learning. And how can they... I mean, the finding of this report, we spent two years, 200 scientists, educators... What's the name of the report? A Nation at Hope. Okay. So you can look at, you can Google... Nationathope.org or Nation. the Aspen Institute site. It's got recommendations any parent can take to their local school board, to their local principal to their teacher even, change the curriculum to teach social and emotional learning. Okay. Pa parents are going to say like, I can't do that. They won't go with me. They, the teachers won't let me change the curriculum. 
The teachers, actually 90% of teachers want a new curriculum. We've surveyed them. Same thing with school administrators. Same thing with young people. We have a groundswell of commitment to changing the curriculum. We just haven't put it into practice. So if you talk to the school boards, they're interested in this. The superintendents, they're interested in this. Actually, a parent knocking on the door saying, I want a social and emotional learning curriculum in my school would be welcome. You'd be surprised. Most parents would say, thank God someone's asked me to do that. Most superintendents will say, I'm glad we finally have the parents on board. We're ready to move on this. And so somebody, how they, what do they understand? Like if they say, I want a social emotional curriculum for my kid. Right. What does that mean? Explain to it somebody. It means that kids will get instruction in chemistry and you know, punctuation and social studies and all these other kinds of topics. But they will also get instruction in self-awareness, in relationship skills, in things like coping, perseverance, grit, empathy, self-regulation, compassion. And guess what? When you learn those things, you don't take time away from the curriculum. You actually make learners more motivated to want to learn the curriculum. So you and I went to school in a time when if you weren't motivated or you were frustrated, you know, you tended to get labeled as bad kid. Mm -hmm. or a bad student, mm -hmm. or you're no good, you're a C student, or you're a D student, or you're not paying attention. You're not smart. You're not smart. Right. Which is a profound error. Scientifically, that's wrong. We know that now. Uh, and yet the, the myth persists. But anyway, back to the point. If we learned the skills that allow us to open up, to connect with ourselves and connect with others, we become better learners. Attention our capacity to pay attention. The neuroscience is telling us this. You've written and, and looked at this uh, so, so creatively. The neuroscience is showing us how to pay attention. And the way we pay attention is by being self-aware, being connected, being present emotionally, and having some sense of motivation for the topic. All those are social and emotional skills. There are programs, curricula that are on the market that have been well-tested by evidence. And guess, guess who really is putting the pressure on us? Employers. You talk to the, we talked to the, the guy who ran HR at Google, and he said, look, we can hire a coder any day of the week. But what we want is somebody who knows how to plan a team, who knows how to listen to others, who knows how to be a self-starter, who knows how to have persistence when the, when the task gets. We can't teach those soft skills. We want to hire them. And schools need to give us kids who have what we used to call the, the soft skills. Why do you call them soft skills? It's an old, it's probably the a wrong, the wrong yes. language. It, the, the powerful relationship skills, right. what we call the social and emotional skills, are moving in to the workplace as the critical ingredient for the success. So, so if you have social and emotional skills, put that down on your resume yeah. that you can build a team, right? That you can that you have emotional intelligence, that you can learn or present learning in a different you way. You get other people. You get you you get to your, your one of your great gifts I would say is that you're great at understanding how other people are feeling. We call it perspective taking or empathy or intuition or great listening skills, journalists mm -hmm. are really good at listening, right? They listen for the story. Let's hope so. <laughs> well, I mean, yeah. maybe maybe not, but you are. Yeah. Oh, yeah, and yeah, I would yeah. argue, you know, yeah. if you looked at you and your four brothers and sisters, there's a whole range of academic skills. It's, but the people amongst us, I, th I think we would all say, all five of us, our brothers and sisters and you, would say that the things that have sustained us most in life mm. and in work have been our capacity to have emotional and social intelligence, not academic or content-based intelligence. So it's not that inf information doesn't matter. Information does matter. Kids need to learn how to punctuate a sentence, how to write, how to understand the history of the country and those kinds of things. But inspiration and connection matter as much, if not more. Don't go away. We'll have more of the conversation in just a moment. But first, let's talk about one of our sponsors. These days, it can be hard to find the time to sit down and learn more. With all the noise around us and in our lives, you may think you just don't have time to read a book or to develop yourself any further. Well, Blinkist is here to help. Blinkist is an app that takes the best key takeaways from thousands of nonfiction books and condenses them down into just 15 minutes. That way you can read or listen quickly on your time. 
Blinkist is made for busy people like you and me who want to get the main points of a book quickly without reading or listening to the entire thing. Blinkist has a massive and growing library from self-help, business health to history books. That means there's something for everyone. And if you'd rather listen than read, Blinkist has an audio feature that makes it easy to finish four books a day while you're on the go. Eight million people are using Blinkist right now. And for a limited time, they have a special offer for our audience. So go to Blinkist.com slash Meaningful Today to start your free seven-day trial. That's Blinkist, spelled B-L-I-N-K-I-S-T, dot com slash Meaningful to start your free seven-day trial. Now let's get back to the conversation. I was listening to somebody who's running for office, actually running for president the other day, and they were saying that it's more important for a president at this point to be inspiring, to emotionally connect than to be you know, intellectual and have these hard skills. What do you think of that? I think the next president has to have as job number one to create a national circle of trust. I think the number one job in America today is to break down our tendency to blame each other for our pain and our fears. And as long as we do that, we cannot solve big problems because big problems require all of us Solve the problem of the environment, solve the problem of infrastructure, solve the problem of race, solve the problem of education. Everybody, they, none of those can be solved in a divided world. They cannot be solved by winners and losers. They have to be solved by everybody being a winner. So I think the first job and the highest job of the president in this day and age is to create a national circle of trust that won't necessarily- What does that mean exactly? Well, I don't think it'll circle. please everyone. You know, you can't please everyone if you want to make a difference. Uh, I'm not naive. But I think we have to end the idea that solutions require losers, that in order for Democrats to prevail, Republicans have to be crushed. In order for you know, the president to prevail, Democrats have to be crushed. That's an old idea. It's rooted in an old way of seeing the world. It's rooted in winners and losers. It's scarcity. It's, it's rooted in pain. It's rooted in creating more and more frustration and anger, dialing it up election after election until we get to where we are today. So the president has to reverse that trend and allow a transforming energy up from the bottom up. Let's focus on investing in communities from the bottom up. Let's focus on investing in solutions that are bottom up. Let's focus on creating partnerships between businesses and governments and citizen groups, social organizations, schools, young people that are bottom up, that empower, that energize, that turbocharge the solutions at the community level that can make a difference, restore trust between communities and police departments, restore trust between communities and educators, restore trust between community, between people and the earth. But you're, And what you have always said to me is that, that you think that's actually already happening. Yeah, I think it's happening, but I don't think the politicians, unfortunately, they don't make a living by doing that. They make a living by beating the other guy. So they're always incentivized to divide. And I think what we've got to do as citizens is incentivize them to unite. Incentivize the politicians yeah. to you. Incentivize them Give also them the... to, to aspire yeah. to paint a picture for us of the country that you're painting a picture about. The You're painting a picture of a very different America than the one that's being painted by people running for president. You're painting a picture of people who want to lead with love, who regardless of their political parties want to come together. You're painting a picture of people who actually are actually out there on the front lines coming together, whether it's from athletics to police departments to firefighters to community organizers to teachers. You're painting a picture of a an inspiring, inspiring nation of people who see themselves as connectors, as whatever the right word is, that is already going on and want politicians to follow them. That's exactly right. That's why we, when we did our report, we called it a report from the nation, our education report. It's because we, we didn't say this is what Washington is telling, or this is what Harvard or Yale or Stanford is telling the world. We said, this is what the country is demanding People are demanding a new kind of school that's just as much about the heart as it is about the head. So pause a second. So you're saying the country is demanding 
a school system, an education system that's as much about the heart as the head. What you're saying is that the country is demanding a politics that's as much about the heart as the head. You're saying the country is demanding a vision of unity that, and they're being shown a picture of disunity. Right. And I think they're being shown that in part because when they go back, they go back in time, well, let's find out who was doing this in the Civil War or the 1920s or 1960 or whatever. And, and it's not, we can, we're not going to get the solution back there. Mm-hmm. We're not going to find the solution by looking back. We have to find the solution by looking now at the present. One 13-year-old girl the other day, Pristina, she says at the end of her presentation at the, at the Aspen Institute, I am, she's 13 years old. She, she said, I am not the future. I am the present. And our present moment invites us to think differently. And when you say, let's have a politics of the heart and not just the head, a lot of people will go, come on. When has that ever worked? You know, we've a, we're a nation of fighters. We're a nation of strivers, revolutionaries, angry. You know, we, we have to have our, we have to be strident in pursuing our goals. We can be a nation of people in pursuit of justice. We can be a nation of people in pursuit of equality and goodness. But we don't have to do that by defeating one another as our exclusive method. We can do it by uniting with one another. And that's something we don't necessarily have a history of, but maybe in the future, we can create something new that we haven't done yet as a country. And then you get a new kind of an America for the 21st century, in my view, that taps into this new emerging energy. So people will say, like when you just said, people go like, yeah, that's good. You know, go ahead, talk about your love, you know, keep that, you know, over there in the corner. But this is a time for fighters. This is a time for division. This is a time for rage because, you know, what's going on is just outrageous. Outrageous. Right. Outrageous. I think that's- One way. (laughs) That's too quick a reaction and it doesn't identify completely the extent of the problem. And if the problem is the other guy's a bad guy, then that's the right solution. If all Republicans in the eyes of Democrats are bad people, then they're right. They should be crushed and thrown into the sea. And if all Democrats are bad people in the eyes of Republicans, they should be crushed and thrown into the sea. But I don't think that's the problem. I don't think that's a full or even close to complete analysis of where we are today. I think we're – the country's changing. Gender roles are changing. Men are changing. Religion is changing, education is changing, and we're seeing the birth of a different kind of harmony, a different kind of connection, a different kind of hopefulness. It's in our lives. I mean, you and I had a mother who Mm -hmm. never once, as you've said publicly, said, I love you. Mm -hmm. I don't think a day goes by Mm -hmm. where you don't say I love you to all of your kids. Right. And I don't try. You're better connected than I am. <laughs> but if my kids are listening, I love you. I love you. I love you. That's a big change. Yeah. And we ought to notice how big and profound that is in our lives. Most people say this to their friends now. Maybe you leave the office and say to your, your people you work with sometimes. I know we. I do. There's a tenderness emerging and an, mm. the relevance, you know, the Pope has spoke to this, a revolution of tenderness. What would that look like? Like, is that such a horrible thing? Are we scared of tenderness? We don't think it's strong. And I it's would argue- It's actually the strongest yeah. possible way to be. So the, the you're, and you're, what I think is so great though, is you're saying that you're seeing it. You're, it's almost like I, when you're talking, I'm thinking it's like a woman giving birth and it's this moment where like you're screaming, everybody get out of the room, leave me alone, you know, and anybody, do you need water? Ah, you know, curse you, <laughs> what? whatever. <laughs> and then out of this comes, out of that, you mm, know, horrible, so comes this beautiful child, right? Mm. And it feels like we're in the, we're giving birth as a nation to something beautiful mm. that we don't have a language for, we don't have mm. a name for, we, we don't even have the name for that kid mm. until it comes out and we stare at it and we go, oh, you're Timmy, or oh, you're Maria, yeah. or oh, whatever. That's why I never named any of our kids until they came out, because I wanted to see who they were, right? right. But maybe that's what we're- We took a couple of weeks, Linda and me. Uh, yeah, I did too, with Christopher. I was like, it was God, Letting him emerge. Like we want to find out who you are. So maybe what you're saying is we're emerging and we need a name for who we are. We're going to always be the United States of America, but maybe 
we're all looking for a name for who we are. And once we, I used to say our, we're our architects of change, but it it's not the right language per se. But, but it pe- is, we are architects of change, arcing, but the question with change is change into what? And that's what we're trying to name. Right. We're trying to name a different kind of way to reconnect and relate and solve problems and lead a country. It's not that politics isn't going to be tough. It's not that business isn't tough. If you're running a business, you know you're in a competitive worldview. I know that. We all know that. I run and have worked in schools. These are tough business. It's not that everything becomes soft and gentle, but it's that we develop a new language that helps us connect with one another in a way that allows us to solve big problems from a place of authentic listening. I mean, the kids, again, I want to go back to don't judge, be open, find serenity, be tough. You know, these are the words they use with us. And I think they're words that echo our generation's, I think, values. And I think there's a, there's a real hopefulness there. I, you know, there's one guy who says that if you just get 10% of, uh, of a population to a new place, they can act as a tipping point. And mm-hmm. I, my guess is there's more than 10% of us who want to be transformers. And if we find the who right language, who are transformers, yes, you're right, present. absolutely, present, exactly, thank you for the correction, who are transformers. Right. And if we give them name, voice, community, connection, I think they can act as a tipping point for the country. And that's where I'm headed right now, looking at all the genius of the Special Olympics volunteer and athlete, all the genius of teachers and administrators and young people in schools, all the genius of so many movements that are bottom up. I was, I'll tell you one last quick story. I was over Christmas, you know, uh, between Christmas and New Year's, like home and I got a phone call, Camp Pals. It's a summer camp, started a summer camp for people with Down syndrome. They started a, a winter break program. And I went over the day before, or the New Year's Eve. Mm-hmm. And in the basement of the 4-H club in Washington, D.C., there were about 100 young people, young men and women. Half of them had Down syndrome. The other half were college students from around the country. New Year's Eve. New Year's Eve in Love the basement it. doing face painting and dancing and serving each other lunch and making pizza. And they've given up. All these young people have decided instead of going on a vacation with their family or instead of staying home and watching football games or whatever else people do or taking walks, they decided to – Drinking. Yeah. (laughs) Partying, going out. They decided to fly to Washington, D.C. and spend the week with their peers with Down syndrome. 21-year-olds, 19-year-olds, 22-year-olds having the best vacation you could possibly imagine. Now, those people, I was looking at them in the basement, and I was like, you are the avatar of change. No one knows your story. Everybody thinks you're narcissistic, and you're selfish, and you're focused on social media, and you can't get enough of you know, this makeup brand, or this vacation, or this tequila, or whatever it is. But there they were, mm. face painting, dancing, hanging out together with peers who half a generation ago would have been locked away. Creating an openness, a trust, a love, a connection, a a new country. That's inspiring. That's inspiring. And it's out there. It's in our present. So uh, I want to leave it with that. Follow Timmy on Instagram because he will introduce you to this inspiring nation, to these transformers who are at work on the front lines of humanity right now, looking at that believing in that will give you hope. I think that there is an alternative vision at work. You're not crazy if you think that's going on out there, or if you are in that and you think you're alone, you're not. It's out there. If you're a parent with young children, fight for social and emotional learning. Download this report that you can bring into your school system. Repeat it again to me. A nation at hope, nationathope.org. So you can download the, the report. Institute. And go to, you know, the other thing is just to make it very simple. You know, ESPN has been doing profiles of these right. transformers. They're called 50 for 50. Go to the ESPN site or Special Olympics. You'll see stories of people all over the world who will make you so proud and so hopeful yeah. about the future. Average men and women, young people, people of my age, older people, just doing their part to give someone else a chance, and as a result of giving themselves to someone else, finding the best in themselves. The stories are out there. We're going to pull them together somehow, 
and we're going to find a way to create a movement. Maria, you've done such an amazing job with your Sunday paper, with the women's reports, with you know the Alzheimer's work, with the Architects of Change work. All of these movements, I think, if we can pull somehow, thread us together. Yeah, let's thread us together and, and put up on our social media. Because I think, you know, you're curating a world there for people to see. So let's put up these transformers, as you call them. Let's put up the vision that you're describing of a very inspired nation of people who are young people who are saying, you know, I want to be a part of the difference. I am the difference. I am the present. And I like that they're doing inspiring work. They're doing it in the name of love, but they're tough. They're tender. And those things can go together. The paradox is they go together and they're spiritual without being uh, quote, religious or advocating that their way is the only way. There is a different America that is emerging, that has that is present, that is different from the one that is divisive and angry, and that can offer us a very hopeful future. It's out there. And so follow Timmy, download the report, and believe, I guess, is the most important thing. So Timothy is Timothy Schreiber. Oh, so <laughs> it's, you don't even right. know your name. <laughs> I do know my name. Okay. I just didn't know. I just get mixed up. Yeah. So <laughs> if you follow his his uh, feed, his Instagram feed, yeah. you can follow Special Olympics. You can go to ESPN, which is 50 for 50. You can download the report. You are living and creating a world and you're naming it. And so um, let's do it together. Let's do it together. And anybody else who wants to do it together, that's what a meaningful life looks like. And as I always say, don't be afraid of having a meaningful conversation with someone you love. It's what actually connects you in your heart. So thank you, Timmy. Heart thank and mind. You, that's our <laughs> theme. I love you. I love you too. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Meaningful Conversations. I thought I'd end my conversation with my brother, Timmy, with this quote from Desmond Tutu. Hope is being able to see that there is light despite all of the darkness. I hope we can all aim to live our lives that way, even in the hardest of times. Thanks again to Timmy for joining me and sharing his wisdom with all of you. And if you want to find out more about him, you can follow him on Instagram, Facebook, check out Special Olympics, Castle. Oh my God, he's got a lot going on. All right. Uh, For more inspiration, please sign up for my Sunday paper newsletter and then come back here each week for another episode of Meaningful Conversations. God bless.